Hear these words from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I'm thankful for your presence today. We're in the middle of a series uh, over the summer, Sundays, going through a few of the I am statements, learning what Jesus, what it is Jesus said about himself uh, that may be good to know. And, uh, but today, I want to share some news. Um, Adair and I, this coming Friday, have tickets, um, premiere night, to see the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And why, why is that funny? Um, I'm incredibly excited. Adair hasn't told me whether she is or not, uh, but I believe in my heart that she's excited. Uh, and in an effort to prepare for opening night, I've been watching all the other ones lately, and so is Adair, kind of. Um, and near the beginning of one of those movies, you know, Indiana Jones, he's the archaeologist, he's, he's teaching his college archaeology course, and during his lecture, he tells his students this, Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're searching for, you need to take a philosophy class. Now, if that's accurate, if a philosophy class is necessary to know how important it is to search for truth, then I'll be the first to admit I may not care that much about the search for truth. Because I took one day of Philosophy 101 at UGA. I took one day. And I knew it wasn't for me when the professor was explaining the semester and what all was we were going to be talking about, and she put her hand on a table in front of the class, and she said the following, we may spend a whole class period discussing whether or not this table is here. <laughs> okay, so within the hour, I wasn't a part of that class anymore, and don't get me wrong, I love a good search for truth, but the table is there. Um, now, as a kid, I think the only search for truth that I was involved in was part of a game called Truth or Dare. Sounds like you played it too. The thrill of the game occurred when someone posed this question to you, Truth or Dare? And you were left there for a moment to ponder what is worse, the embarrassing thing that they're going to ask me to do or the embarrassing truth that they're going to ask me to admit? <laughs> and it's a tough choice. As an adult and in a civil society, the search for truth often involves a courtroom in which truth is the accurate or factual recounting of events. And what happens when a witness takes a stand? Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And that truth is so important in our society that if you're proven to be doing the opposite, that's something called perjury, and it becomes very difficult to tell the truth in court or to tell anything in court again because the truth is important. Now, 
Apart from modern understandings, throughout history there have been plenty of different understandings, definitions of truth. There are different understandings in the Old and New Testament. Raymond Brown, the great Catholic scholar, shares that in the Old Testament, the idea of truth is often mentioned in a religious context referring to a personal experience or feeling rather than a strict legal interpretation. In some rabbinic writings, truth represents a human perspective that happens to mirror the divine reality. In an old ancient Greek text of the Old Testament book of Ezra, truth is actually portrayed as the powerful righteousness in nature and society that stands against the unrighteousness of humanity. The Apostle Paul aligns kind of with that definition, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Here, truth is the opposite of wrongdoing. It is righteousness. It is goodness. It is uprightness. But the Greek word that John uses for truth is different. The word he uses is aletheia. And this word typically comes with two definitions. One definition is sincerity. The origin of the word sincere comes from the making of marble pillars. I don't know if you knew this, but in the construction of marble pillars, if there was a flaw, sometimes the creator or the dealer would fill that imperfection with wax. He would polish the wax and it would blend in perfectly and you wouldn't be able to notice it and then he would sell the pillar. Of course, you know what would happen. If it rained or there was any kind of weather, the imperfection would be revealed. The wax would fall away. Thus, the pillar was not sincera. It was not without wax. So when someone tells you I'm sincere, what they're actually saying is I'm without wax. And that's nice. <laughs> Which ultimately means that you are not pretending to be one thing while all the time being another Truth, sincerity, to be without wax. Aletheia means sincere. But another definition is simply this, reality. One scholar defines it like this, the real state of affairs. It is the disclosed manner of things, the way things really are. Reality, aletheia. And honestly, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to share another movie reference. But um, it reminds me of A Few Good Men. In that famous scene, you know the one where Tom Cruise is going up against Jack Nicholson's character on the witness stand and he says to him, I want the truth, and Jack Nicholson says, what? You, you've seen it too. <laughs> and if you know anything about that plot and conflict, the implication in that particular situation is that the truth represents the way things really are. And what Jack Nicholson is saying to Tom Cruise's character is this, you are not worthy of, nor would you understand the true reality of things. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle reality. Now, our passage today is interesting because we're no longer defining truth as some high ideal, some cloudy thing, some part of philosophical discussion. Truth is no longer an idea. What is unique about this passage is that for the first time in history, for the first time in the search for truth, truth is revealed in a human being. Dr. William Barclay says it like this, many people have told us the truth, but no one has ever embodied it quite like this. And in a moment, at a time where Jesus is illustrating who he is to his friends in his farewell speech, he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Aletheia. I am reality. I am the real state of affairs. I am the disclosed manner of things. I am the way things really are. 
There's a similar thing that happens a couple chapters later in the famous scene in John's Gospel where Jesus is on trial with the Roman governor of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, and they begin having a, a back and forth. And at one point, the governor asks Jesus, what is it that you've done that's caused your people to bring you to me? And Jesus responds with not quite the the answer he was expecting. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have fought to prevent this arrest. But I'm not that kind of king. My kingdom is from another place. And Pilate asks, you are a king then? And Jesus says, you say that. But I was born to the world so that I could witness to the truth, to the aletheia. Everyone who cares for truth and who who has any feeling for it, recognizes my voice. And Pilate then responds with his famous question. Do you remember it? What is truth? Seems a typical thing sometimes for a politician maybe to say, doesn't it? It seems appropriate that the one with the power of the Roman government behind him asks the question because for Pilate, truth is whatever the Roman government says it is. For Pilate, reality is what Rome wants it to be and makes it to be. It is this perceived and manufactured reality. By the way, such a way of life was present before Pilate. In Plato's The Republic, Plato argues that it is better to be virtuous than to seem virtuous. It's better to be truthful than to seem truthful. But his brother disagrees, and he argues for a different point. He says nonsense. People care a great deal more about appearance and reputation than about reality. Honestly, that doesn't seem different from right now. We live in time when news organizations have gotten really good at manufacturing realities, half-truths, so much so that you have to do some digging after you watch the news. You have to go to PolitiFact or fact-check after you read the news to see if it was true. Individuals, we've become similar manufacturers of reality. Social media makes it so that I am able to share the parts of my life that I want you to see, which is not real. It's not real. It's not reality. It's partial. It isn't sincere. And what's worse, such platforms actually encourage us to just continue down that path. It's a cycle. So I'd say not much has changed since Rome. And so Pilate poses the question, what is truth? A better question may be, who is truth? And Jesus, who the reader knows to be the truth, says to Pilate, I came to witness to the truth, the actual truth way of things. And anyone who cares about reality, the way things are, knows who I am and knows my voice like sheep to a shepherd. I am the truth. I am the Aletheia. I am reality. I am real. What is he saying? I think Pastor Leslie Weatherhead does a good job with this subject. Weatherhead was a preacher at City Temple in London. And after World War II, City Temple had been reduced to rubble And Pastor Weatherhead wrote a series of sermons trying to understand suffering and destruction and reality and the true state of things. And he says this, that God created the world with an intended reality. There's a way things should be in a reality that God intended. But of course, humanity come along, we come along with our own free will. We have created our own reality. We have manufactured and created our own way of things. And in turn, we have twisted and done our best to do away with God's intended reality. And we've replaced it with one based on our own wants and our own desires, no longer regarding others first, no longer caring for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the neighbor, or the stranger. And this way of thinking, this way of being, this half-truthing has infiltrated its way from the individual into the very systems we have set up for ourselves. It has become systemic 
But God has a plan for a third way, he says, a final reality. Weatherhead calls it the ultimate, in which God will take our broken and flawed reality and redeem it better than before it was broken. So friends, when Jesus says that he is the truth, the aletheia, the the reality, he is proclaiming that within him, the ultimate reality, the kingdom of God, the new way of things is taking shape. In him, the way things are is no longer possible. In Jesus, we see the way things as they should be and as they will be. And through Jesus, God shows us that even when we prefer our own way, our own reality, our own half-truths, even when we prefer to nail the truth itself, to a cross, God's redemption plan, God's ultimate reality is already starting to shape things. And the beauty of the resurrection is that even death cannot hold back life. God's aletheia, God's truth, God's reality is going to find its way to us. Friends, that is what God is telling us through the narrative of scripture and the narrative of our lives that despite our best attempts, the creator God of the universe remains creatively working a new way an ultimate way that begins at Jesus and continues. And the coolest part to me is that Jesus invites us to be a part of that reality, to be sharers of that aletheia, that truth. And you all accept that invitation every week. I don't know if you know that, but you pray it every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is a call for truth to occur, for God's own reality to be made manifest now, for our manufactured Reality is to be laid down and for God's intended and ultimate to be made real in this world. And in Jesus Christ, we're given a glimpse of what things should like, should be like, and what they will look like. Of course, it doesn't look transformed yet. It may not, but it is in process. We are in process, and Wesley called that process sanctification. God is working something, and God is working on us. It reminds me, listen to it this morning, of U2's song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. In it, he sings, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What is he saying? We know the truth. We know what reality should look like, but the ultimate reality has not yet been accomplished. Not yet. But one day, Isaiah chapter 2, there's a day coming when the mountain of God's house will be the mountain, solid, towering over all other mountains. All nations will stream to it. People from all over will set out for it. And they'll say, come, let's climb God's mountain. He'll show us the way he works so we can live the way we were made. And it sounds like to me, Isaiah is convinced that the way the world is, is not the way the world has to be. That's what our job is. If you have committed to follow in the footsteps of the rabbi Jesus, you have committed to calling out to the world, to pointing out what reality looks like now and sharing the beauty and truth of what the ultimate reality will look like. We are simple storytellers. This is how it is, but this is what it could be, and this is what it will be. I saw an example of of that this past week. Many of you know Frank and Barb Irvin. They've been members of this church for a number of years and more recently have been living at Wesley Woods, one of our retirement communities with so many of our wonderful folks over there. And Frank passed away last weekend. And I went to see Barb early this week. And I learned from Barb about Frank's struggle 
with dementia and memory loss, and especially over the last year and the last few months, and about how that illness took a toll, especially in the last days. I know so many of you have been touched by that illness, and it is a hard thing to walk through. But as we talked, I couldn't help but notice from the moment I said hello to Barb that she seemed joyful. She seemed happy. How could that be? I thought. And so I just asked, Barb, how are you doing? Because you seem pretty good. And she replied, Andrew, I'm wonderful. I'm ecstatic. And I asked why. And she smiled and said, because... Frank is himself again. No more illness, no more memory loss. Frank is now, as he once was, and better. Friends, that's a lady who believes that God isn't done. That's a lady who believes that the current state of things is neither the intended reality nor is it the way things will remain because Frank is now who he was intended to be and he's better. Theologian and author who recently passed away, Tim Keller, he he has this quote. He's quoting J.R.R. Tolkien and then he's adding to it and this is how it goes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Friends, God's preview of the ultimate reality, God's truth, has come to earth in Jesus. He is the very embodiment of everything that should be and everything that will be. And it is only a matter of time. But friends, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And we are being made into what we once were intended to be and better. Let us pray. Gracious God, 2,000 years ago on earth, Jesus uttered the words, I am truth. I am the truth. And in that statement, he told us so many things and shared that the world may not be as it should be, but in me it will be. We're thankful for saints in our lives who have come and gone and have embodied that love and grace that you have shown us. And we're thankful for people who point us to the fact that the world will be remade, that you are actively reconciling us to you, and you have invited us to that work. God, may you continue to make us into what we were once intended to be and better. In Jesus' name, amen.